This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 22nd, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, much of the strategy for controlling COVID-19 has revolved around various preventive measures. We first used social measures, and then we augmented those with vaccines. There's been considerably less success with actually treating COVID-19. So where do we stand today as far as the availability of therapeutics? I think that treatment has sorted out into two phases. Early on, most of our success was with treating the later stages of disease. It's important to remember the pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2 infection. At early times, disease is established and there's ongoing viral replication. However, much of the damage is done by inflammation that occurs after viral replication is diminished or ended. This latter stage is seen in hospitalized patients with moderate or severe disease. We know that various anti-inflammatory medications, including glucocorticoids like dexamethasone and cytokine and JAK kinase inhibitors, can decrease the risk of progressing to intubation and death. These certainly aren't miracle drugs, but they do have a measurable effect. There's been somewhat less success with earlier stages of disease. Early use of antibodies in outpatients does decrease the risk of hospitalization and severe disease, but the logistics of administering these parenteral agents has meant that very few people have received them, and use of the small molecule drug, remdesivir, has largely been restricted to hospitalized patients because this drug requires several intravenous doses. In this population, it appears to have a small effect on disease progression, but hasn't been demonstrated to limit the risk of death. So thus far, no home runs out there. Eric, I think you highlight several very important concepts that have emerged over the last year and a half. By understanding disease pathogenesis, we can now target when the aberrant immune response is dominant, such as later in illness, versus when the virus or direct viral consequences are the drivers of illness. And understanding the kinetics of the illness associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection is critical to being able to determine which treatments may work when. And understanding the timing, I think, has made a big difference in our understanding when we should be using different therapies. For example, as we think about the monoclonal antibodies and the small molecules like remdesivir, They seem to work better early in illness, often in the outpatient setting, versus later in illness when patients get admitted, versus much later in illness when they have progressive respiratory failure and go to the ICU. By defining the phases of illness and what is driving the illness has turned out to be quite an important feature in understanding when these different treatments may be most beneficial. I think that the question is also particularly acute right now, Lindsay, as the Omicron variant is increasing throughout the U.S. and throughout the world, it's become clear that vaccination still works. It still limits the risk of severe disease, but it doesn't work as effectively as it did before. So there's certainly a lot of interest in whether or not we can treat patients once they're infected as our ability to prevent infection has decreased somewhat. So Eric, I think that this also highlights the issue of how our therapies work. 
as you mentioned with vaccines, bringing out an immune response that can either prevent infection with SARS-CoV-2 or prevent progression to more severe illness. And this is becoming acutely important as we think about where our monoclonal antibodies fit in versus our small molecules or direct acting antivirals. Based on the mechanism of action, for example, with some of the monoclonals, they may be targeting a specific aspect of the virus that can evolve around that target. Antivirals may be targeting part of the pathway that the virus needs to replicate. And depending on the mutations the virus generates, may or may not be able to evolve resistance to these types of therapies. So understanding the mechanism of action of our therapies and how the virus is changing allows us to predict which therapies will maintain efficacy through time as we see different variants of concern emerge, like Delta and now Omicron. Over the past week, we've published two studies of small molecule drugs for the treatment of COVID-19 in outpatients. So let's start with a study we published today in which we learned more about remdesivir. How was this study performed? Steve, this was a randomized controlled trial in outpatients or residents of long-term care facilities who presented less than seven days after having a positive test for COVID-19 and had at least one risk factor for developing progressive disease. The participants were treated either with three daily doses of intravenous remdesivir or placebo. They were followed for four more weeks. The primary efficacy outcome was a composite of hospitalization related to COVID-19 or death from any cause. The trial was conducted from mid-September of 2020 to the beginning of April 2021 and was stopped early as the number of cases dropped precipitously. And what did the investigators find? This group included about 280 patients in each arm of the study. The group was relatively representative of the U.S. population, though with a median age of 50, might have been skewed toward a younger population than the group we usually consider to be at highest risk. In the end, the risk of hospitalization was low in both groups, with only two patients in the remdesivir group and 15 in the placebo group requiring hospitalization, with no deaths in either group. Still, there was a substantial decrease in the pre-specified composite with an 87% reduction. This held up in various secondary analyses. Interestingly, the rate of drop in the viral load was similar in both groups, even though remdesivir would be expected to inhibit viral replication. This is a good result. It's far more impressive than that seen in the original remdesivir studies in patients with more severe disease, and likely those patients were later in the course of infection. It's still puzzling why there's not a more pronounced antiviral effect, and this was also seen in the earlier studies. But the biggest problem with remdesivir is logistical. We're having trouble delivering even single antibody infusions. It will be very difficult to give daily infusions of the drug. So Eric, these results are very encouraging. I think there are key aspects of the study design and reporting that we need to pay attention to. In particular, it shows us the value of the placebo group. This tells us the risk of the study population for progression of severe disease allows us to compare across studies that have placebo groups to understand the severity of risk for progression and therefore try to understand data across populations and across treatments. It's also the endpoint. These studies are designed with hospitalization and death 
as you pointed out, there were no deaths. So even though that's the primary endpoint, we as a community need to pay attention to the primary benefit here is the prevention of hospitalization without effect on death. A very important endpoint, but important for us to understand the components. You also point out the issue of the mechanism of action, which this should inhibit viral replication. So there should be evidence of a deferential decay in viral load. This is not seen. It doesn't vitiate the results in any way at all. However, it adds complexity to understand how the benefit was obtained and what the mechanism of benefit may be. And lastly, as you point out, we have to understand the biology of the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. But achieving an effective biologic benefit, such as decreasing hospitalization, is only one step in the process. The next step is how do we go to scale, not only on the manufacturing side, but also on the delivery side. And as we've witnessed with the monoclonal antibodies and how we scale that up to deliver to those who could benefit, we need to think about that as well with remdesivir or other intravenous or IM therapies where logistics are not a trivial issue that we need to overcome to deliver it to those who can benefit, especially if there's a narrow time window. Last week, we published on another antiviral agent, molnupiravir, which can be given orally. This could avoid the logistic problems that you've talked about with remdesivir, the issues of intravenous administration. How was the molnupiravir study set up? Well, first, Steve, both molnupiravir and remdesivir target the same protein, the viral polymerase. Remdesivir is a prodrug of a nucleotide that inhibits the polymerase. However, molnupiravir has a different mechanism of action. It's a nucleoside, and the viral polymerase recognizes it as a base and incorporates it into the viral RNA. This results in mutations that rapidly accumulate and block subsequent viral replication. In this randomized controlled trial, molnupiravir was administered to outpatients as four 200 milligram capsules dosed twice each day for five days. The inclusion criteria were broadly similar to the remdesivir study. In this case, participants needed to be symptomatic and have had their first positive test and symptom onset within five days of enrollment and had at least one risk factor for a bad outcome. Participants were randomized to receive either the study drug or placebo. The primary efficacy endpoint was all-cause hospitalization or death through day 29. Participants were also followed for safety. The mechanics are a bit complicated. The study was started in May of 2021 with a planned interim analysis that fell in September. At that point, the study was terminated by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because it was considered successful, and the results were reported in a press release and a submission to the FDA. However, because there had been more patients enrolled after the interim analysis, a second tranche of data later became available. The published study contains both sets of data and an overall analysis. Eric, I think that the emergence of this novel therapy, molnupiravir, is a testament to collaboration between government funding, such as from the NIH, academic investigators, such as at Emory and other centers, industry collaboration, such as with Ridgeback and Merck, to allow the development of a novel therapy and to move it forward quickly. And these types of collaborations can bring forward new treatments, which I think is very exciting. These data also demonstrate the incredible challenges that DSMBs face, our data safety monitoring boards. 
when new therapies are brought forward, we don't know if they'll be effective, do nothing, or perhaps have harm. DSMBs are set up to monitor these studies in real time to minimize harm, and if overwhelming efficacy is seen, to declare this as early as possible so the fewest number of patients are put at risk and beneficial therapies can be moved forward to those who can benefit. These data and this study progress demonstrates the complexity that DSMBs face and how we need to continue to improve our design characteristics to minimize the play of chance and to maximize the opportunity to understand what works as early as possible. As I've said before, I have the tremendous amount of respect for the DSMBs that oversee all the studies that go on and how difficult their job is. And what did the full data set, the overall analysis, find? The investigators randomized about 1,400 participants, one-to-one, to receive either molnipiravir or placebo. In general, the drug was fairly well tolerated. The full analysis showed a reduction in reaching the composite endpoint from 9.7% to 6.8%, though the reduction was more impressive in the interim analysis group. There was one death in the molnipiravir arm and nine in the placebo group. So in this study, molnipiravir did work, though the effect size was not as striking as it had originally appeared from the initial analysis. Still, it does seem to offer a benefit in this group. So Eric, I think it's important to understand who was and was not in this study. You know, it was a well-designed and conducted study. However, given where the pandemic was at the time the study was conducted, all of those included were unvaccinated. They had risk factors for disease progression to increase the likelihood of identifying those who might be at risk for hospitalization and death. And therefore, a therapy can show a benefit in preventing that. And as part of the enrollment, they determined who was antibody positive or negative, suggesting prior infection or later infection, as this therapy was given early in illness, which is an important consideration as we discussed earlier. Some of the results are a little confusing in that one would have expected an effect on the viral load to be more profound. And as we discussed before with remdesivir, this doesn't always track with the clinical outcome. So not a critical element, but one that helps us understand the efficacy of the therapy and that it fits what we would expect. But there is much more to be learned in how these agents work once we understand the clinical benefit. What's also important to understand is that this agent has been studied in those who are inpatients, meaning more advanced illness or later in illness, and no benefit was seen there which is why it's critically important to understand identifying who is infected early. So treatments that can work when the viral replication is at its highest and initiating a pathogenic process can be deployed and potentially show the benefit of impairing viral replication. It is also notable that some of the benefits seen early in the first half of the study or the second half of the study, such as hospitalization, appeared to be less pronounced in the second half of the study. However, the mortality benefit of one versus nine stands out as a very important feature of the results that we need to consider carefully 
as we weigh which benefits we value the most as a community and in treating our patients. Lindsay, I wanted to highlight one of the points you made, which is the timing of therapy. As you said, in a study that was published in NEJM evidence at the same time as our study, this agent really didn't have much of an effect on inpatients. And that's not surprising. As we discussed earlier, and as you just discussed, the pathogenesis of disease is different early and late. One of the differences between this study and the remdesivir study, there are several differences, but one small difference is that this enrolled patients within five days of diagnosis as opposed to seven days of diagnosis. That extra two days would seem to have a negative impact on the potential usefulness of remdesivir because earlier is clearly better in this infection. So it makes it difficult to compare between studies, but certainly if these agents are going to be used widely, it's going to be very important to use them in conjunction with testing, rapid testing and rapid results so that they can be initiated at a time that they're going to have their maximum benefit. Additional features to consider has to do with how rapidly everything about COVID changes. When this study was conducted, vaccination was still being scaled up. So this was largely in an unvaccinated population. In addition, when this was done, Omicron was not circulating. And as we have new viral variants, what are the implications of that on different treatments? And as mentioned earlier, novel viral variants can more easily outsmart a single targeted monoclonal antibody than a small molecule that targets a viral pathway. However, it's incumbent upon us to understand if there are any meaningful differences in activity of agents that we have studied when a given set of viruses are circulating versus emerging new variants. In addition, what's important about Omicron is how quickly it is spreading and how much background wild-type infection may occur leading to populations that no longer are naive to SARS-CoV-2. Therefore, how do antivirals behave in the context of background immunity to wild-type infection? These are not reasons to think this won't work. These are just factors that have changed that we have to understand that are different than the context of when the study was conducted. So you said that safety appeared to be good in this study, there has been discussion of theoretical risks with molnupiravir. So what are those risks? Well, Steve, this is a complex issue. And as you point out, theoretical concerns. And in fact, this was an issue that was actively debated at the FDA advisory committee meeting a few weeks ago. In particular, given the mechanism of action is thought to be related to increasing mutations associated with viral replication, leading to failure of the virus. The question was raised, could this impact the host genome or reproduction? And though there's no evidence that this occurs, given the mechanism of action, this concern was raised, and as I mentioned, was vigorously discussed by the advisory committee. Yes, Lindsay, I think those are considerations, and I wonder, and this is total speculation because I have no inside information, if the rather long delay between the advisory committee meeting and approval is around this issue of mutagenesis that we raised earlier. 
there have been concerns raised about whether or not this agent could be mutagenic in the human genome. And there are reasons to believe that it may or may not. And in fact, there's some data supporting the idea that this may not be a major human mutagen. But the other consideration is the virus. When you treat with a mutagenic agent, you increase the rate of evolution of the virus. If the virus survives, it comes out with extra mutations that it wouldn't have had otherwise. So that may increase the rate of development of resistance to molnupiravir or to monoclonal antibodies or to anything else for that matter. So it's a theoretical concern, but it's a real one. And so Eric, I think that speaks to two important points. One is if the population being studied has a high risk of progression to hospitalization, then a therapy that may have some side effects can be quite beneficial. As the population that we give a therapy to has a much lower risk of disease progression, the side effect profile still remains the same. So that the risk-benefit ratio is dependent on the risk of the population or of a given patient's likelihood of progressing to severe illness. And as vaccines are scaled up, as background natural infection occurs, these are different factors that may change the risk-benefit ratio that has to be looked at carefully. The other issue that you highlighted are the impact of this kind of therapy on the virus, perhaps accelerating mutations that may be advantageous. I think this becomes a particular concern in severely immunocompromised individuals. Because in most of us with a normal immune system, we will clear the virus. And a therapy may accelerate our ability to clear the virus. For those who are unable to clear the virus, then the question is, how do therapies that are partially effective in impairing the virus have benefit to the individual versus an impact on the virus and its ability to mutate and perhaps develop a, uh, enhancing mutations in theory? So given all of this, if molnupiravir is approved, how do you see it being used? So Steve, this is going to be very challenging. Uh, you know, I am struck by the difference in mortality, which to me is a very important benefit that I care a lot about. On the other hand, all of the features we've been discussing complicate where the benefit may be and our understanding of the risk, which will increase as more people are treated. With a couple of hundred people treated, our depth of understanding of both efficacy and safety is quite limited. So therefore, we will learn more as it is used more in enhancing our understanding of both efficacy and safety. However, I could imagine, for example, a case, let's say an 86-year-old gentleman who's overweight with hypertension, diabetes, unvaccinated, who is early in infection, where one could see this having potentially the most benefit. It gets much more complicated once you start removing risk factors for disease progression as we try to understand the risk-benefit ratio. But there clearly are certain circumstances where I think the data speaks strongly to benefit and other circumstances where we need more data to better understand the risk-benefit ratio. Here's the issue, just as you outlined, particularly in these days of Omicron, when there aren't very many alternatives, 
should we let people who are at very high risk of infection go untreated? And the answer is probably no. But from a public health standpoint, do we want to widely use an agent that could result in a greater rate of viral evolution? The answer is no to that too. Um, so I think we need to be using this agent probably, but in a rather restricted group of individuals who are at highest risk. Unfortunately, there's no easy way. Once a drug is approved and gets out there, it's out there for anybody to use. And I think it's going to be a huge challenge to control the use of the drug. It's just difficult, probably impossible to not let people use it when they need it. So I guess, Eric, I would say to our community, to practitioners, providers, to those of us who are treating patients with COVID and want to prevent significant morbidity, this is an agent where we need to pay particular attention to the details and to really understand how it works and where the risk and benefits are. And we need to stay abreast of this in light of new information that will emerge over the weeks and months to come. This is not as simple and straightforward a medication as many of the others that we use, at least not now, while the data set is still very small. But as the data set grows, we may have a better understanding of how to optimize the benefit and minimize the risk, both in light of how the virus is changing and what other therapies remain active and are accessible. I'm a big believer that with education, both for us as practitioners and to our patients, the right clinical decisions can be made. But this in particular requires staying up to date on the latest thinking and the latest data, given the current state of the information available. I think that's an excellent point and one that we really need to make over and over again in this rapidly changing area. The concern about an increase in viral evolution is still a pretty theoretical one. We haven't measured that rate and we won't have an idea until the drug is actually used. At the same time, we have a very real problem that has changed in the past week with the advent of Omicron variant, which has rendered some of our monoclonal antibodies not so useful anymore. So I think we all have to be comfortable with change and with the rapid availability of new information on the ground. We can't make a decision and expect to live with it forever right now. We have to be able to adapt as we learn. And Eric, I think that for me, in thinking about these two reports that we've recently published, and in thinking about the state of where we are with COVID, there are a couple of key messages that resonate with me. First, the importance of testing. We need to scale up testing to prevent transmission, to protect our communities, but also it allows us to identify who may benefit from treatment, particularly those treatments that need to be given early. Number two, studies in unvaccinated populations have been very helpful for us to determine which therapies work and don't work. We need to generate data in those who are vaccinated or recovered from natural infection so that we better understand the risk-benefit ratio in these emerging populations, which is largely to be dominant over the weeks to come. Third, DSMBs are incredibly important, silent partners in study conduct 
but truly important members of our community who allow the research to go forward safely and minimize the uncertainty and enhancements of the statistical frame and other elements of how they oversee research is important to make them more effective. And lastly, the placebo groups in the different studies are really important to look at because that allows us to understand the population studied, the risk of progressing to severe illness, and how to compare different studies, different treatments across different platforms to give us some sense of the relative benefit and where different treatments may fit in as we strive to treat our patients better. So, Lindsay, we've discussed a lot of potential drawbacks, the difficult logistics of administering remdesivir and the theoretical concerns with molnupiravir. I do want to point out that this is probably the beginning, though, of a change in therapeutics, that we are now going to have more options for treating patients, and we know that more are upcoming soon. So while we don't know how best to use these agents and we haven't figured out the actual mechanisms for administering some of them, I think we are going to have a lot more to offer our patients very soon. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.